Years ago, we were on vacation at a friend's cabin near Chama, the kind of place where it's great to do a puzzle or to cruise through a book. And on this particular vacation, Sarah and I did indeed cruise through a book. It was a memoir of someone's conversion to Christianity. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's called Surprised by Oxford by Carolyn Weber. She was a grad student at Oxford when she first encountered genuine Christians. And she tells the story about how they said shocking things to her. They said stirring things, otherworldly kind of things that she couldn't not think about. For instance, one of her friends at a pub one night noted, just say Jesus, just the name Jesus, and people either get happy or they get mad. They either smile or a cloud comes over their faces. They are either elated or irritated. Embarrassed, they try to change a subject or walk away or engage. They pursue deeper conversation and connection. No other name has such potency. Not Clinton, not Gandhi, not Thatcher, not Lenin. That's true, isn't it? If you're not a Christian, has that thought ever occurred to you? Why is it that Jesus is such a lightning rod for controversy? Some willing to kill him, some willing to die for him. Some hell-bent on squashing his name, others willing to sacrifice their lives to spread his name. You might say, well, Ryan, I don't think it's quite so black and white. I know plenty of so-called Christians who seem rather flaky. I know a couple of Christians firsthand, and I don't think they would actually die for Jesus. I remember years ago, I had a non-Christian friend I was talking to about Christianity, and his biggest hang-up with Christianity was Judas and Peter. Judas, one of the 12 apostles who betrayed Jesus, and Peter, one of the 12 apostles, one of the closest disciples, certainly the most vocally committed out of all the disciples, and he denied Jesus three times. What are we to make of such things? Well, today is a good day for us to think about Jesus being hated by some and loved by others, to think about how Jesus was abandoned by some and inconsistently followed by others. We're in Mark chapter 14. If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Mark 14. It's there in the second half of this chapter that we see Jesus tried and denied. It's the night before his crucifixion. We see his trial and we see Peter's denials. Now, before we read our passage for this morning, let's remind ourselves of what we saw last week since these scenes are coming at us rather quickly, both as they happened and in Mark's telling of these stories. Mark layers his stories like sandwiches, and sometimes he layers them like double-decker BLT kind of sandwiches. So sometimes we see a scene, a theme introduced, and then something else happens, and then it comes back to that conclusion of the unfinished story afterwards. That's what's happening from last week's passage to this week's passage. And so last week we saw Jesus predicting, verse 26 and following, that his disciples would all desert him. Let's read that section. Verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said, emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. From there, Jesus led them to the garden called Gethsemane. There, Jesus prayed, and the disciples slept. Judas then arrived with a lynch mob following behind him. Judas betrayed his master with a kiss. The lynch mob came to arrest Jesus like they'd arrest a bandit. They expected a fight, but Jesus, of course, surrenders himself willingly, not because he's weak, not because he's outnumbered, but because it's been the plan all along. So verse 49 There, Jesus says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. It's according to God's plan. It was written about hundreds of years before. And then Mark tells us, verse 50, they all left him and fled, just as Jesus promised they would, and just as they insisted they would not. That's where we left off last week. Now, this week, the story moves on, verse 53 to 72. Let's read it all together at once, and then we'll take it section by section. Verse 53, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests in the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out to the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. 
But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Our passage begins with a setting. Do you have two verses at the beginning? With a setting, two men and two trials, at least two trials that are coming. You've got Jesus and you've got Peter. Jesus is led to the high priest with the chief priest, the elders and scribes all together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. These verses set up the two scenes that follow. One focusing, of course, on Jesus and one focusing on Peter. And really, for each of them, there's a trial, a trial of sorts. For Jesus, it's an official trial, a literal trial, a judicial one. For Peter, it's less official, but it is a kind of trial. There are charges. There are witnesses. And the question will be, how do Jesus and Peter respond in these trials, what will they say when tried? Now let's pretend that we don't know what happens after verse 54. Let's pretend we only know what Jesus promised back in verse 30. You will deny me three times, Peter. And we know what Peter insisted right after. Never. I will die with you before I deny you. Then you look at verse 54 What's going to happen? It looks like it could go either way. On the one hand, verse 54 looks promising for Peter. Peter apparently had fled with the rest before this, but now he's following Jesus who's being arrested and led into the court, presumably without the others, by himself. He's risking something by being this close. He's in enemy territory. He's warming himself near guards. And don't forget, he caught off the ear of one of those guards uh, pretty recently, as in minutes or maybe an hour before. On the other hand, this doesn't look so promising here in verse 54 because he followed Jesus at a distance. He's keeping distance. He's not wanting to have the same fate as what it looks like for Jesus. Even though he had recently said, even Though I die with you, I will not deny you. Here he's not with Jesus. Jesus is standing trial, and Peter is sitting, warming himself by the fire. That's the setting. It's some masterful storytelling on Mark's part. And even more than that, it's true history. So now we come to Jesus' trial. There will be two trials. First, Jesus' trial. And let's notice who's there at this trial. Practically everyone is there. All the enemies are there. All the chief priests with the elders and scribes. Verse 55 says the whole council. It's the middle of the night, so maybe it isn't exactly the whole council, but it's enough of the whole council for Mark to say the whole council and all the chief priests and elders and scribes. And the chief priest... Singular is there as well. Caiaphas. 
Up to this point, Jesus' enemies have been nameless, faceless groups of people, Pharisees and Sadducees and elders and scribes and priests. But now the chief priest is involved, the head honcho, the big kahuna, that one who is from the lineage of Aaron, back as old as the days of Moses, this high priest who alone could make that yearly sacrifice in the holy of holies. He is up in the middle of the night for this kangaroo court to try to lynch this peasant teacher, all while it's the Passover festival. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is tomorrow. What desperation. They've also assembled witnesses And that's where we see that Jesus was falsely charged. He was wrongly charged. You see, verse 55, they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. That doesn't mean they didn't have any who came forward. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. And you might be thinking, how is that false testimony? Isn't that pretty much what Jesus has been saying? It's close. It's not exact. What Jesus has said is, uh, well, John 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then The Jews responded, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days. And then John gives a comment. He was speaking about the temple of his body. You destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. As we went through Mark, we saw in chapter 11 that Jesus came, and he turned over the tables in the temple, right? He put a judgment upon those in the temple and on the temple itself. And and he said in chapter 13... You see these great buildings? I tell you, there will not be left here one stone upon another. So he did say the temple would be destroyed. He didn't say, though, that he would destroy it. Like he was going to, you know, brick by brick, block by block, dismantle it or something. The Romans destroyed it in in the year A.D. 70. He never said he would destroy the temple. He never said that he would build another temple with or without hands. He said he would raise up a temple, and by that he meant his body in the resurrection. So these so-called witnesses, they got some things right. He did predict the temple's destruction. They got three days in there. Jesus has talked a lot about three days, but they're filling in the gaps with whatever, whatever putty and caulk they can find. Mark tells us, verse 59, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. He said that also in verse 56, they did not agree. And he's stressing this, not just to show the falsehood of their claims, but also to stress this very important part, that in Old Testament law, it was required that there be two or three witnesses, and they be independent witnesses, and that their testimony agree. These did not agree. There isn't sufficient evidence of these claims. 
So Mark is stressing for us the injustice of this trial. Now remember, they, they bribed Judas to lead them to a place where they can make a secret arrest. They've assembled the necessary people for a trial in the middle of the night. They've, they've known that they need to get this done that night. They need Jesus condemned and handed off to the Romans before the next day, which is the feast. They said already, we, we can't do this during the feast. And they've got witnesses, but their testimony did not agree. You see how persistent and willful they are in their injustice of Jesus' trial. It's even deeper than that. The Mishnah is an old Jewish document, records old Jewish tradition, really records Jewish law. It was written in 217 AD, but before that, long before that, it was oral tradition. And it was probably oral tradition before and at the time of Christ. And it has sections on judicial proceedings. So even though it was written in the year 217 AD, it was probably oral tradition at the time of Christ, and this is probably what would have been assumed and practiced in Jesus' day. Things like this. No trials were to take place during the night, only the day. That's what the Mishnah states. All trials were to be in public, never in secret. No trials were to take place during any of the Jewish festivals. No guilty verdict could be reached in a single day. There had to be a night separating the accusation and defense from the, the verdict. This was to discourage hasty decisions and also to allow some time for compassion to kind of grow for, uh, for the, the accusers and, and the judges. Two or more witnesses were needed, as I said. Again, their testimony had to be independent and in agreement. And the witnesses were to be examined and cross-examined. The accused was required to have someone speak on his behalf. And the high priest was to be there as an arbitrator of sorts in a final vote. He was not to participate in the questioning of the accused. But that's exactly what he does next. The high priest stood up in the midst, verse 60, and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Remember, these were their own rules, not Roman rules that had been handed down from the land. Some of these were God's rules from Leviticus. They broke all the rules to get rid of Jesus. They had to. He was innocent. And he was silent. He remained silent and made no answer. Why was he silent? What does it mean that he was silent? Perhaps he was silent because their accusation was half true and half false, and no amount of clarification, especially at this point, was going to make any sense to these rabid dogs. Perhaps Jesus was silent because he had in mind that proverb about not answering a fool according to his folly. Perhaps he was showing contempt for this kangaroo court. Perhaps he was silent because he was not accountable to them, and he need not defend himself to them. Perhaps he had in mind Isaiah 53, verse 7, that he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Or perhaps he was silent only until the truth of his identity would ironically be placed upon the lips of his enemies. He would force them to say more about who he is. And that's exactly what happens. The high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Or Son of God is what that means. Pious Jews in those days spoke of God in those roundabout ways. Technically it's called circumlocation if you want to impress someone at a dinner party, I suppose. Circumlocation, son of the blessed. You're, you're piously speaking about God without saying God. Here they were, piously speaking about God as they rushed through this trial, if you can call it that. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus said, I am. In Matthew's account, Jesus says, you said it. You said it. He was wrongly charged, but he boldly confessed. He boldly confessed. He not only says, I am, which may or may not be hearkening back to God's own personal name in the Old Testament, Yahweh, I am. He's not only affirming that he's the Christ, the Son of God, but he adds to that. He takes it up a notch. Really, he takes it up several notches when he says, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. We can at this point now stack up some titles and some assertions, whether it's from the high priest and Jesus affirms it or from Jesus' own lips. You've got the Christ. Yes, he is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the one to come. Peter confessed him as the Christ back in chapter 8, but Peter had the wrong idea about what kind of Christ he was going to be. Peter, like so many in his day, thought that the Christ would be a military hero who would overthrow Roman tyranny. And Jesus clarified for Peter right then, he would be a suffering servant. He would be a servant king. He would die. He's come to fix a far greater problem than Roman rule. He's come to fix the problem of sin and judgment and Satan's tyranny. He's come to be a ransom for many, a payment for their sins. He is, yes, the Christ, and he is also the suffering servant that the Old Testament talked about. He's the Son of God, the Son of God. Mark began his gospel account by telling us this. That this is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's what God said of Jesus at his baptism. You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. It's what the Father spoke from, from heaven in the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And when Jesus says you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, that seated at the right hand of power looks back to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. There, it's referring to David's son, who is also David's Lord. This one who will come and will be exalted to God's throne. 
not at God's right hand as a second kind of person, but ruling with God himself, as God himself. He's seated at the right hand of power. And when he says, son of man, coming with clouds, that looks back to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, listen to this. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, the eternal God. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him or literally worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, Jesus said to the chief priest that he is the end time divine judge of the whole world. That's what Daniel 7 was talking about. The one who will be worshipped, the one who will judge. He is coming with the clouds. That reflects divinity. It doesn't say he's coming in the clouds or through the clouds. He's coming with the clouds. So much in the Bible, clouds are like God's chariots. It's what he rides. It's what he comes in on. He's coming with the clouds. And you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds, Jesus says to these religious leaders. And remember, he says this to them while he's chained before them, while he's being charged, while on trial, while being judged. They think that they're judging him. And he's saying, you will see the judge, me, coming with clouds and power and great glory, they will see him again and he will not be chained. We all will see him again. Unless Jesus wasn't telling the truth. If Jesus was telling the truth, if, if he is who he said that he is, he is coming and you will see him. Now, either that's blasphemy or that's a divine warning. Of course, these religious leaders take it as blasphemy. The high priest, verse 63, tore his garments, said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Their decision is he's deserving death. In verse 65, some then began to spit on him, to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, tell us which one hit you if you're the Messiah, if you know all things. And the guards received him with blows. Now this is exactly what Jesus predicted would happen. It's very specific. In Mark 10, Jesus said, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus promised this would happen. It's now happening. It's what was foretold back 600 years before Jesus foretold it. The suffering servant described in Isaiah. Isaiah 50, you might not know this, when we say suffering servant and we often think of Isaiah 53, we should remember that there's more in Isaiah about the suffering servant than just that one chapter. And so in Isaiah 50, 
In first person, the suffering servant says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Isn't it funny? They mock him. They spit on him. They beat him. They're leading him to the Romans for his crucifixion. It's what he said would happen. It's what his word foretold. It's all according to plan. As C.S. Lewis famously said, Jesus Christ was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Or the longer version of what C.S. Lewis said is this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says that he is a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus was wrongly charged, and he boldly confessed who he is. Secondly, we come to Peter's trial. Peter's trial. Remember, Peter was told by Jesus that he would deny the Lord three times. He said, no, I won't. I will die before I deny you. Peter did flee at Jesus' arrest, but now he has followed, but at a distance. And while Jesus was standing trial... Jesus was sitting, warming himself by the fire with the guards. And now he's about to face a trial of his own. He's rightly identified. He's rightly identified. A servant girl, verse 66. She looked at him, verse 67, and said, You also were with him, the Nazarene, Jesus. Now this shouldn't be much of a trial. This really isn't all that threatening. She's a servant girl. The old commentaries you keep using the word, she's a wench. <laughs> Who says wench anymore? You know it's old commentaries you're reading when they say, the wench girl, there she goes. But they're onto something. Women in these days in general were not allowed to be witnesses in court. Sadly, men thought women were too unreliable to be witnesses in court in those days. And this is not just an adult woman. This is a girl. This is not just any girl, but she's a servant. This servant girl, this wench, says, you were with Jesus. Just with him. And there's no charge there. There's no threat there explicitly. Of course, she's absolutely right. He had been with Jesus. He'd been with Jesus for over three years. He was the first one to start being with Jesus. In fact, when 
Jesus first called those disciples. Back in Mark 3, Mark tells us he appointed 12 so that they might be with him. With him. Weren't you with him? He's rightly identified, but he boldly denied. He boldly denied it. He denied it, saying, neither, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He denied it, and he said, that doesn't even make any sense. He resorts to ridicule. You're not even making sense. The question is nonsense. And then he went out into the gateway. Notice the geography. He had followed Jesus, but at a distance, and there he stayed, identified by the girl. Now he went out. He's retreating. And then the rooster crowed. Maybe the sound of a rooster crowing is more common, was more common for Peter than it is for me. Anytime I hear a rooster crow, I notice that I've heard a rooster crow. Uh, on Sunday mornings, I get here usually pretty early before uh, sunrise. I'm usually the first one here. I usually park in the dirt lot that's over there. And our neighbors in that direction have watch roosters. They're like watch dogs, but they're roosters. <laughs> because it's not sunlight at all. There's nothing peeking over that mountain over there. And they're barking at me. They're, they're crowing at me. Uh, and, and every Sunday I hear them, and every Sunday I notice that I hear them. 13 years now, I've been hearing roosters on Sunday morning, and I notice it. And I think of Peter every time. Peter doesn't seem to notice the rooster crowing, even though Jesus had just told him that very night, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. Rooster crowing should shock him back into sanity or into clarity, but it doesn't. And sin is sometimes just that bullheaded and that blinded, that deaf. The wench girl saw him again. And now she says to others, to bystanders, this man is one of them. And again, he denied it. But these are just bystanders. Again, these aren't guards. Now, this is getting slightly more serious. More people are involved, but, but again, this is not terribly threatening. A little while passes. There's space in between these confrontations. There's time for Peter to come to his senses, but he doesn't. After a little while, one of the bystanders, too, said, Certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. Matthew's account tells us his accent gave him away. There must have been a Galilean accent that those in the metropolitan Jerusalem thought was kind of funny, you know. The Galileans were the hicks. The, the, they're, they're the backwoods people, and they've come down from Jerusalem, and you notice them. Maybe they have different clothes, different styles. But they certainly have different accents. You're with him. I don't even know the man. I don't even know what you're talking about. You sound just like him, though. You're one of them. You're from Galilee. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. He said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. It's not that he cussed. 
he invoked a divine curse upon himself if he was lying. It's like saying, God damn me if you think I was with that man. I don't even know him. I do not know this man. It doesn't even say Jesus' name. This man. He boldly denied. He vehemently denied. He specifically denied. He repeatedly denied. And he denied with curses and oaths. And then the rooster crowed a second time. And he remembered. Verse 70. He remembered what Jesus told him. And he broke down and wept. Now why did Peter deny his Lord like this? Was it fear of threat and danger? Was it the possibility of arrest, trial, and execution? Or was he too ashamed to identify with this quote-unquote Messiah who looked all but done for at this point, now arrested, now being tried, no doubt going to be condemned and eventually executed? Well, we're not told. We're not told why. Maybe, maybe Peter wouldn't exactly be able to tell us himself. Maybe Peter would say something like, I, it made no sense. I wasn't calculating anything. Maybe he would simply say to us by way of explanation, I wasn't on guard. I wasn't on guard. And Jesus warned us the night before, be on guard. Chapter 13, verse 9, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. Perhaps Peter was gearing up for kings and councils and wasn't ready for little girls and random strangers. But Jesus warned any would-be followers back in chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit, forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Perhaps Peter had these words in his head when he fell down and wept. What would it take for you to deny Jesus? Under what circumstances would you be embarrassed to identify with him? Can you think of times in your life when you maybe even haven't denied Jesus, but you've kept him from plain view? I remember as a kid, I was embarrassed among my friends who came over to our house and saw that we had Bible stuff, Jesus stuff, plaques and Bible verse quotes and stuff. I was embarrassed by that. At times, I've been embarrassed to read my Bible in public. I've certainly been far too shy in talking about Jesus to people who need to hear 
who he is and what he's done. What sins do you think are impossible for you? Peter thought it was impossible for him to to deny Jesus. Take heed, you who think you stand, lest you fall. This is a very good time for us to ask these kinds of penetrating questions and to be on guard. The Supreme Court, as Trent prayed about earlier this week, decided that gay marriage would be the law of the land for all 50 states. And those of us who believe that marriage should be defined as one man and one woman, well, we are now considered cavemen. We're we're now chalked up along with those people who used to believe the world was flat or those people who used to think slavery was good. Christians may in the future be unable to take certain jobs, to stay in certain jobs with a clear conscience. Churches in the future may lose their tax-exempt status. We will all most certainly be mocked, at least those who refuse to say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. We must remember that the Supreme Court of the United States is not the Supreme Court of eternity. We must remember that the Supreme Court of the United States is not the Supreme Court of our souls or of our wills or our beliefs. Just look at Jesus' trial. Remember, they thought they were judging him and he's the judge. And so we look to him and we remember that no matter what happened last week and no matter what will happen next year or 10 years from now, we will have the same Bibles the same truths, the same message, the same mission. We will have the same Jesus, the same God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We must remember that it has never been in any era or culture, it's never been easy or convenient or natural for sinners to enter the kingdom of God. It's always required a miracle. It seems like, man, how do you witness now with this thing getting in the way. I mean, evolution was the hard thing before. I mean, I'm just going to be dismissed if this comes up, even if I don't initiate it. But we, we trust a sovereign God who works in wills and hearts. The wind blows where it wishes. You don't see it coming. You just see its effects. And that wind will keep on blowing by God's grace. We must remember that in history, the church has often been most sane and most clear-headed when it's been marginalized or even persecuted. And we must remember that the gospel has often been clearest and most effective when it's shown to be tested and when his people cling to it even under fire. Let's remember that the greatest human need isn't healthy marriages, let alone heterosexual marriages. That is not this world's greatest earthly, greatest need. The greatest human need is for sinners to be freed from God's wrath upon their sins. The greatest human need is for us deniers and betrayers and us fearful fleers to be reconciled to the God who bought us to be ransomed by Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
bearing shame and scoffing rude. In our place condemned he stood, sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. So in the days ahead, let us vote when we can vote. Let us think and speak carefully and thoughtfully about marriage and laws. Let us do all that winsomely and courageously. Let us not be ashamed of any part of God's word or his plan. And let's especially not be ashamed by or distracted from what is actually the most controversial thing we believe, that Jesus died for sin, that we are sinners, that we need a Savior, and we need a Savior so bad that he had to actually die and bear divine wrath for us to be fixed. Let us not deny any part of his word, but let us surely not deny him. Our passage today is a tale of two trials. Two men, two trials, and two very different responses. We can think of a number of contrasts. Let me just read what I have written down here contrasting Jesus and Peter so we can see how bright this shines for us. These Contrasts are very distinct. Jesus rightly predicted his rejection, betrayal, trial, beatings, and Peter's denials. But Peter wrongly predicted not fleeing, not denying Jesus, and even dying for him if need be. With Jesus' trial, there was difficulty getting eyewitness testimony. And then even then, they were false and they were inconsistent. But with Peter, there were witnesses, one after another. And they all spoke the truth and they all were consistent. He'd been with Jesus. Jesus was charged by the high priest and the chief council, the whole council, in the highest Jewish court. Peter was charged when he was warming himself by the fire. Charged by a servant girl and then bystanders. When Jesus was charged falsely, he confessed his identity truly and fully. He even doubled down on their charges and added to what they said. But Peter, when he was identified correctly, he denied his connection with Jesus boldly and emphatically and repeatedly. Jesus was wrongly charged with blasphemy. Peter blasphemed. Just as Jesus was being denounced as a false prophet, his prophecies about his betrayal and his beatings and Peter's denials were happening right then. And both scenes end in shame. Jesus' undeserved shame and Peter's rightful shame. Here's the point of those contrasts. Don't trust yourself. Instead, trust Jesus. Don't trust in your will, your commitment, your resolve, your oaths. Just look at Peter. Trust Jesus. When Jesus was tried, he remained faithful. Hallelujah, what a savior. And yet we can learn from Peter. We can learn from his repentance. He wept and he broke down. And that sorrow we learn from later in the Bible was not like Judas's sorrow after his betrayal. No, both were sorrowful, 
but only one was truly repentant. 2 Corinthians 7 fits so perfectly of these two men. Godly grief, we're told, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas godly grief produces death. Judas was the latter. We know that not because he committed suicide, but because Jesus called him the son of destruction, the son of perdition. We know where he is. We know that his sorrow, great as it was, was not under repentance. It was worldly grief. But we know that the former of 2 Corinthians 7 there, that godly regret, that's what was true of Peter. And we know that because of his restoration in John 21, where there Jesus, the risen Jesus, came to Peter, who was fishing. We're not told why he was fishing. He went fishing. It's almost like maybe he was giving up on this thing. He went fishing. And Jesus comes to him and he asks him, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, I do, Lord, I love you. He asks again, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. He asks again, Peter, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he asked a third time and said, yes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, okay then, feed my sheep. Peter denied him three times. Jesus had him affirm his love to him three times. All's good. He was restored. Feed my sheep. And Peter fed the sheep just like Jesus told him to. He gathered lost sheep by the thousands when he preached one sermon in Acts chapter 2. He fed the sheep with words like he wrote in a letter we call 1 Peter. His letter is still feeding sheep today. Let me read from 1 Peter as I close. Let us notice the fingerprints of Peter's experience that is all over this letter. You can almost feel the tear stains upon these words as, as Peter pleads with Christ's people to have unswerving allegiance and praise to Jesus. So he says in 1 Peter 2, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. In chapter 3, he said, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In chapter 4, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And in chapter 5, he wrote, 
Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. May it be so. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for teaching us and warning us through Peter's failures, for showing us repentance in Peter's tears, for showing yourself to be a great Savior who can not only forgive but restore. We pray here in this place right now, your spirit would work in a way where some are actually being convicted. They need to fall down and weep at their shame of you. Others in this place, Lord, they need your spirit to come and encourage them they need to hear you say, feed my sheep. They need to know that they do love you and you, more importantly, love them. Some in this room, Lord, need to believe upon Jesus for the very first time. They need to hear that Jesus is a welcoming savior, that he is a friend of sinners, that he calls all and any to come. He gives rest to the weary. He gives healing to the sick. He gives life to the dead. What a friend of sinners we have in him. Help us now to sing of him and to him thoughtfully, passionately, loudly for your glory and for our good. Amen.